Let's pray. Lord, thankful for the people that you brought out. I'm just glad that we could come into the house of the Lord. Open our eyes that we see wondrous things from your law. Lord, let it just be alive and active and just cut to the heart. Let it not return void. Help us to hear it, understand it, grasp it, and apply it for your glory in your name. Amen. Continuing our study here through the book of Psalms, we're going to be doing Psalm 8 and Psalm 19 this morning. Now, if you remember correctly in our introduction to Psalms a few weeks ago, we said how these Psalms are here for a reason, a purpose, and an order. It kind of looks like sometimes, like why does this one follow this one? I just want to show you some of the connecting dots here. Take a look here at Psalm 7. Look how Psalm 7 ends, verse 17. I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. To the name of the Lord Most High. Jump ahead now to 8.1. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name and all the earth who have set your glory above the heavens. Now jump down to the end of 8. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name and all the earth. Then jump ahead to chapter 9, verse 2. I will be glad and rejoice in you and I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Just those little connecting dots there. If time would allow, we could stop and see how all these psalms just connect together so beautifully. The issue is time does not allow that. And so as we go through these psalms, we have to stop and make these cuts and say, okay, because of time purposes, we can do this or that. I'm looking here to what I want to cover. And I have the notes that I have taken. Then I have three pages of other type notes. So... I don't, we may only get through the first verse, but the point is, there's so many neat connecting thoughts here. But when you get to Psalm 8, it's what I like to call one of the creation psalms that really focuses on God's glory and creation. Now, there's other ones, and we can't do them all at once, but we can do Psalm 8 and Psalm 19 today, and that's the direction we're going to go with this psalm here as we talk about God's creation. I'm going to tell you exactly what the order is this. We're going to talk about, first off, how God himself is just amazing, the name of God. Is amazing. Then we're going to go into how his creation is amazing. Then it's going to be how his word is amazing. And as his word is amazing, it makes me analyze myself as a created being. And it makes me go out and say, I want to live the life. So that's the order here. God is amazing. His creation is amazing. His word is amazing. Makes me analyze myself as a created being. And then makes me go out and say, I want to live the life. And that's the order here that we're going to be going through with Psalm 8 into Psalm 19. So with that being said, let's start. Psalm 8, verse 1. To the chief musician, on the instrument of Gath, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you're mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. What a great start there. If you notice, verse 1 and verse 9 are very similar to each other. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. And you see that repetition there in 1 and 9. How excellent, how majestic, some of your translations, how magnificent, how much splendor. Let God's magnificence be the bookends of your life. The beginning of it and the end of it. That's what you see in Psalm 8. Let's start talking about how excellent and magnificent his name is. Verse 9, let's end by talking about how excellent and magnificent his name is. Let's get the beginning and the end. I think about what Christ himself is described as in Revelation 22. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. I love that. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and last. Hebrews 12 says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. If you got the beginning and you got the end, why do you have to worry about the middle? You've heard me use this analogy before, and it's a true story. I don't make it up. I don't watch a movie unless I get online first and read the plot. I don't watch anything like that. Why would I want to go invest any time or energy into a movie that I do not like the way the movie ends? I've seen too many movies where I go in and I get emotionally attached to the characters. They don't make it. I get emotionally attached to the dog. The dog doesn't make it. I'm not doing that. So I get online, see how the movie ends, and if it ends the way I want it to end, I will then watch the movie. But if not, I'm not going to. I know the beginning and the end of my life. I know it. I know I was created by God, 
And I know that I've accepted Christ and I believe that I am forgiven of my sins through what Christ did on the cross. I know how my life will end. I don't know when my life will end, but I know how my life will end. So therefore, since I know the beginning and I know the end, I don't have to worry about anything in the middle. I know my wife loves the Lord and I know my wife is saved. I know that she has Christ as the end of her life. When does that happen? I don't know, but I can't worry about the middle. I know I've raised my kids to know Christ. I hope they grow up and serve him and love him and accept him at an early age passionately. I can't worry about the end. When you know that you got God at the beginning, God at the end, and he's amazing on both ends of it, you don't have to worry about the middle. So just remember that as we go through this. Because that majestic splendor, excellence of the Lord is the book ends of our life and how powerful that is. And when you know that God is that amazing and powerful, it keeps you from wasting time on other things. It says this in Psalms, Psalm 119. Turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things. If God is that amazing, that majestic, much splendor. Why would I want to look at anything else? Turn my eyes away from looking at worthless things. Let me look at the beginning and the end and focus on him. So we see the power and majesty of his name. How excellent is your name? How excellent is your name? Verse 9. Think about the name of God. Think about the power of that name. You know, in Philippians, when it's talking about the name of Jesus, it says this in Philippians 2. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him. And given him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Of those in heaven and those on earth. Of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. At the name of Jesus every knee should bow. As we've said many times before there are no atheists in hell. At one time people will come to the conclusion of who Jesus is and the power of that name. Peter went on to say in Acts 4, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's the power of the name of God. The name of God is so amazing and so powerful and so majestic that it actually says in the law in Exodus 23 that God told the Israelites, don't even mention the other gods. Don't even mention their name. Why would you even want to waste your breath talking about another god with a little g when you can just focus on who God really is? Just think about that once again, how much time we waste mentioning the worthless things of this world that actually mean nothing. Focus on the splendor and majesty of who Christ is. The power of the name. That name of Jesus that is powerful. That name of Jesus that is majestic. That name of Jesus that we end our prayers with. In the name of Jesus that gives us access to God in heaven. The name of Christ. I'm not saying legalistically. I'm not saying force it. But I'm telling you this. When you realize the power and splendor of his name. It makes you say. Why would I not want to talk about him more? Why would I want to waste my time on anything else that is worthless? And this powerful God. This powerful God. Then throws this out in verse 2. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength. What a strange little verse. Imagine that you're getting ready to go into battle. And you get to draft your army. I'm going to start with three month old babies. That doesn't make any sense. You're going out to start a sporting event. And you're going to pick the biggest strongest guys to win the game. Nope I'm going to pick a bunch of babies. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength. This doesn't mean that God gets his strength from babies. What it's saying is this. That even the feeblest person are strong in the Lord. That even God has strength in babies and nursing infants. Because he is so powerful, so mighty. Look at the extremes. We have this amazing name, verse 1, that is above the heavens. Then we have this name that has strength from babes and nursing infants. That's the mighty name of God. And you see this put into practice in Matthew. If you remember correctly in Matthew 21, when they were getting ready here for what we call Palm Sunday. It says that the blind, the lame came to the temple and that he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, meaning Jesus. And the children crying out in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna means save us. They were indignant and said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise? In the other gospels it says, tell them to stop. Jesus says, no, that even the nursing babes and infants will proclaim me. That's how mighty and powerful he is. 
I, I know with my boys, especially when they were younger, if I wasn't feeling well, asking them to come pray over me. Because they just believe God can move mountains. That's all they've heard their whole life, that how powerful and amazing God is. It's not until we get older and wiser that we start doubting God. But when we have childlike faith, we just believe that God can move mountains. And I can remember one time not feeling good and having the boys come over. They laid hands and prayed over me. And I remember distinctly one of them looking at me saying, do you feel better? And I said, not yet. And he said, why not? Because in their little world, why not? We pray. God is good. God takes care of us. Once again, remember the simplicity of that, of the power and the majesty of God's name, that even the babes and the nursing infants, the strength there that comes. Now, we've seen the power of his name. We've seen the strength of his name. Now it takes us into looking at his creation. Verse 3, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. See, I, I see your powerful name. I see your powerful creation now. And I stop and I focus on that. And I just stop and I, and I think about that. The heavens, the work of your fingers. I, I don't think we can fully grasp the power and majesty of his creation. I think we're just too used to it in some ways. Especially when you try to understand the depth of it, the vastness of what we're dealing with here. You know, in science, there's this idea that when the numbers get too big, we just kind of throw out these little smaller numbers beside them to kind of express how big and powerful they are. And after a while, those numbers get so big, we lose all understanding of how big they are. Think of the idea of the speed of light. This idea that we can, we can envision miles per hour. We get that. Speed limit is 55 miles per hour. So therefore, I know that I'm going to drive 55 miles in one hour. And maybe if you're going faster, if you're on the turnpike or something like that, you may be going 70 or 75 miles an hour. That seems really fast. But then you stop and you think about the speed of light. That is 186,000 miles per second. Now all of a sudden, we went from 55 miles per hour to 186,000 miles per second. Our second. It's so fast, we lose the concept of that speed. 186,000 miles per second. God says, verse 3, Consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. He says, consider it. He says, go on and think about this for a while. He says, actually, in Psalm 111, The works of the Lord are great, studied by all who have pleasure in them. He goes, go out and study my works. It's kind of interesting. In, in the book of Proverbs, he says, go sit down by the ants for a while and watch them. Learn diligence. He says, go out and look at creation for a while and to study it to see my majesty and my glory. I, I want to kind of give you a, a picture of this a little bit. Um, I, some people are visual, so it kind of helps. I am a huge astronomy fan. I love astronomy. I, I, I have this telescope. I love to go out. I love to look at Jupiter. I love to look at Saturn. I love to look at the planets. I love to look at it and the vastness of this creation. And I want to build this point up here a little bit. Alan, would you mind putting up that first uh, slide there real quick? Just to kind of show you what we're dealing with here real quick. This idea of when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. All right. Jupiter, that's Earth up there on the top left. Now, I know we know this, Jupiter is big. But when you look at Jupiter from Earth, it just looks like a really bright star. But then you got Earth up there. That, that, that's the size difference of what we're talking about here. We think we're this amazing big planet. Nothing. Nothing. Go to the next one real quick, Emily. Saturn. Oh, I love Saturn. I love Saturn. Saturn, when it's at the right time, Saturn can actually be in line with Earth so you don't see its rings. But when Saturn flips or we flip, you've got to remember space is kind of unique that way. We can see the rings full on. It's amazing. You're looking at the rings of Saturn and you can see it. And you look at the size of these things. And God says, this is why I'm sending you out to look at this stuff. Consider this and consider the vastness of it. And go to the next one. And that's the sun. And that's Earth. Do you see Earth? Earth is right there. I love this. I discovered at the 830, the laser dot point is bigger than Earth. That's us right there. That's what he's saying. He goes, go out and consider this. Now, we can just kick this up a few notches, and then the problem is it loses all scale because our sun's really not even that big compared to other suns. Then it just keeps getting bigger, and the vastness of this. And we're talking one star 
out of thousands has been calculated how many thousands you can see with the naked eye but then if you had to tell I mean sometimes I, I would take the telescope and if you just put it on a black thing of space where there's nothing all of a sudden there's hundreds of stars right there that you just can't even see that's, just, that's God that's why he says when I consider your heavens the work of your fingers just your fingers the moon and the stars which you have ordained stop and understand the grassness of this now here's the problem with this with this beautiful sun that is that mighty and powerful. Look at the size difference again. That sun that can dry up, melt ice, that can do all these things. If I go outside and I don't like the sun in my eyes, what do I do? My hand can block out that massive sun. Same thing can happen spiritually. You don't like God in your life, you just put your hand up and block it out. And your small hand can block out the majesty of God. Because you just don't want it. Sometimes we don't. And this is the danger of that. But we're going to get to that more in Psalm 19. Go ahead now and look at the next passages here. Because when you see the size of these things, and we're just talking Saturn and Jupiter and the sun, which is kind of nothing in the whole scheme of even space. Now all of a sudden, you get to four. What is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of man that you visit him. You know, God, you, you created suns that dwarf our whole planet. And on this planet, I'm one out of how many billions? But yet, what is man that you're even mindful of me? You even think about me. And not only think about me, the depth to how he thinks about me. What you think about is what's important to you. Now, we have this nice way of telling people like, oh, I forgot, whatever. What we're really kind of saying is what you asked me to do was so important that I forgot it. That if I don't write it down, and, I, and that's why I have to say, listen, it's not that I don't mean it, but if you tell me something, if I don't write it down, I will forget it. Aren't you thankful that God doesn't forget us? Think about his thoughts towards us. What you think about is what's important to you, what you're dwelling on. Like right now, some of you, some of you are thinking about the word. Some of you are thinking about the teaching. Some of you are just already, I've already lost you. <laughs> some of you want more slides. At least that's something to look at, you know. It's this idea. Think about what God thinks about though. How much he's thinking about us. Psalm 40 verse 5. Many, O Lord my God, are your wonderful works that you have done. And your thoughts towards us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. The thoughts of God are more than what can be numbered towards you. Now, I'm not saying this to pick on anybody, but this is the reality of even my love. How much do I think about God? And how much does God think about me? I heard a teaching recently where they said, how often do we treat God like our daily vitamin? We get up in the morning, we take the pill and move on with the day. We trust that it does something throughout the day, but we don't really think about it. But yet the Lord never stops thinking of us. They are more than can be numbered. Psalm 139, how precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. Now here's the reality. In this world, you will be forgotten. Even the people that love you deeply are going to ignore you sometimes. Your spouse is going to disappoint you and forget about you. Your kids, neighbors, co-workers, boss, your pastor, your church. You, you are going to get pushed off to the side sometime in this life. That's why Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. People will forget your anniversary. They'll forget your birthday. They'll forget your name. They'll forget you. If you ever just drive through a cemetery and you realize there's all these people that are just forgotten. If it wasn't for a stone with a couple numbers on it and a name, we wouldn't even remember them. But yet the Lord says, my thoughts towards you are more than can be numbered. That's why your identity has to be in Christ and nothing else. Because it's the Lord and nothing else. And not only that does he think of us. Look at verse 5. We're made a little lower than the angels here. This kind of gets a little interesting. If you have more time, I encourage you to go look at uh, Hebrews 2, 1 Corinthians 15. These points are really developed deeper in the New Testament. That's not what we're talking about here this morning. But I encourage you with Hebrews 2, 1 Corinthians 15. This idea there's almost a heavenly order here where the angels trump us this time. They are a holy angelic being. But it's interesting to note that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, we eventually will judge angels. That's a deep thought there. But at this point, we're made a little lower than the angels. We don't have access to heaven at this time. But yet, he's crowned us with glory and honor. And look at six. We're the top dog on this earth. 
We have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under our feet. All sheep, oxen, beasts of the field, birds of the air, the fish. It's not only that he thinks of us. He has let us have a kingdom, if I dare say that, in this world where we get to be powerful to an extent. Now here's the problem with that. That goes to our heads. And we think we're pretty big and pretty powerful and mighty because on this earth, I'm number one. I'm above all the other creation. He reminds us, wait a second, you're lower than the angels. Wait a second, take a look at the sky, how small you are. Wait a second, it's about glorifying my name. And that's what the psalm is trying to mind us. It reminds us a couple things. The excellence and the power of God's name. Verse 3, that that powerful name, that amazing name is supposed to make me remember how amazing his creation is. Verse 3, and then to make me stop and think, he even thinks about me? And even he's even blessed me in verses 6, 7, and 8, that I have life, I have breath, I have dominion. Lord, you have blessed this worm with that? Then it takes me back to 9. Oh Lord, our oh Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Why would I not just stop praising you? Because this is un. Believable. Now at this point, before we get to Psalm 19, I want to share this analogy that I heard one time. Because we can hear this. What are we going to do with this information? John Piper has a real neat analogy with this. And he calls it the microscope-telescope analogy. And this is what he says. He says, how ambiguous the word magnify is. We talk about how magnificent God's name is. We're supposed to magnify the Lord, the Bible says. Does it mean magnify God like a microscope magnifies? Or like a telescope magnifies? Think about that. A microscope makes little teeny things look bigger than they are. And a telescope makes gigantic things that to the naked eye look little, look more like what they really are. You know what that is. You take the microscope and you're looking at a slide and you're taking a cell or something and all of a sudden it looks big. You take a telescope, and if you come and you look through my telescope and you look at Jupiter, I'm going to tell you right now, or you look at Saturn, you're going to be disappointed. Because they don't look like those pictures. If you look at Jupiter through my telescope, it's about this big. You're looking at something billions of miles away, and it still only looks that big. And that what happens is it kind of takes away the grandeur of it. Jupiter all of a sudden, oh, it's not that impressive. Oh, but you don't realize what you're looking at. How often do we do that with God? Yeah, I get it, James. God's, yeah, God's great. Amen. Great name. Yeah, but you, you don't get it. No, I get it. We sing the songs. We worship. We read the Bible. Yeah, but we, we, we got to get this telescope out. We're not, we're not understanding the grandeur of Jupiter. You're not understanding the rings of Saturn. You don't understand what we're looking at here. Because it still looks so small. Because it's so big, so vast. That even the telescope is not able to do justice to what we're looking at. And that's what he's saying here about God. This is what it says. Now, which way are you called upon to magnify God? The answer is like a telescope, not a microscope. It's blasphemy to magnify God like a microscope. Oh, poor God. He's so tiny and so small. I must now make him look bigger than he is. That's blasphemy. But in fact, in this world after the fall, God to most people is either not on their radar screen at all or a little tiny dot. Comes back to, I can block out the sun with my hand. That amazing, powerful sun can be blocked out with my hand. Becomes zero significance. Your calling is you on, excuse me, your calling on this planet earth is to put a telescope to the eye of the world. That's why you exist. By your behavior, your parenting, the way you do your job, the way you worship, the way you handle your things in life. Everyone should read off of your life, God is great. That is why you exist. You're a telescope to show people the power and the majesty of God. Let people see how big he is, which now takes us to Psalm 19, please. Continuing this theme of creation. Psalm 19, verse 1, to the chief musician of Psalm of David, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven 
in its circuit to the other end. There is nothing hidden from its heat. I absolutely love Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. That's one of my favorite witnessing verses. If I'm out talking to someone and they bring up weather or sky or something, I mean, it just happens, you know, oh, what a beautiful day. Oh, did you see the sunrise this morning? Oh, did you see the sunset? I immediately go to Psalm 19.1. I said, oh, yeah. I said, one of my favorite verses is the heavens declare the glory of God. It's like fishing. I'm just going to throw that out there and see what they say. Because the heavens do declare the glory of God. That is God's greatest witnessing tool is creation. It's his greatest witnessing tool. Please remember, nowhere in the Bible are you called to prove to people that God exists. I don't know where we got this idea as a Christian that it's my job to prove to atheists that God exists. Can you imagine serving a God that was so small that I had to prove that he existed to you? No, trust me, he's there. He's there. And I will try to figure out a way to prove to you the existence of God. God nowhere in the Bible says that that is my burden to prove that he exists. My only responsibility is to proclaim light. And if people want darkness, they can stay in darkness. But it's my job to shine the light, scatter the seeds, and see what people do. Because the heavens declare the glory of God. I remember one time we were doing some um, uh, door-to-door evangelism up in Dearborn. And we ran into a guy. We were inviting him to some church events, etc. And he came out and said, not interested. And the pe- people tried again. Oh, would you please come? He goes, listen, I'm not interested because I'm an atheist. And I, and I tell you this. I mean this in all sincerity. I love talking to atheists. If I run into somebody who is willing to proclaim and admit they're an atheist, I want to sit down and talk to them. Because I find that absolutely fascinating that they can say with such a clarity and a confidence that they don't believe in the existence of a God. So I went over to him and I said, I heard you say that you're an atheist. He goes, yeah. And I said, "I, I promise you, I'm not saying this to debate you. I'm not trying this to argue with you. I'm fascinated by that statement. And I said, why are you an atheist? And his simple answer was because there's no evidence of God. And I said... Psalm 19.1. I didn't tell him I was quoting the verse. I said, but the heavens declare the glory of God. Look at this. He goes, yeah, I know, but that's just all by chance. And then right there we had this wonderful conversation. Hopefully seeds were planted. But just looking out the window and you see trees, you see grass, you can see the sun, you can see the moon. That's God's witnessing tool. And the heavens declare the glory of God. And this is an ongoing theme that God has said that he wants us to keep understanding. You don't need to turn there, but Romans 1 says this. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So now, God's wrath is revealed against man. That seems unfair. Because what happens if they don't know about him? Because what may be known of God is manifested to them. For God has shown it to them. God has shown man him. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so they're without excuse. God says, my, my invisible attributes are seen through creation. See, that's what Psalm 19 is saying. Day unto day utters speech. Night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line, their voice has gone out through the, all the earth. And their words to the end of the world. If you ever sat there at night saying this is an unfair God that allows people to die and go to hell who have never even heard about him. That there's some guy living in the middle of South America that has never had any contact with Christianity or Jesus. And so therefore this guy is born, lives, and dies with never hearing the name of God or Jesus. And that guy gets sent to hell. I find that completely, utterly unfair. And that's not the God I want to worship. And I would say I agree. That's why you have Psalm 19 that tells me there is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. I hear missionary groups talk all the time about people that have never heard the gospel. And I understand they may have not have heard the gospel explained to them, proclaimed to them. But then sometimes some missionary groups take it to this idea of people are dying and going to hell without ever hearing Jesus. I always hear that and I say, that is an unfair, unloving God. Psalm 19 tells me it's different, though. Psalm 19 tells me that God has made himself clearly seen to the world. That their voice, I don't speak their language, but guess what? Creation speaks their language, verse 3. Romans 1 tells me his invisible attributes are clearly seen. John takes it one step further. It says in John 1, in him, in Jesus was life, and life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now listen to this verse. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. 
Every man has light shown on them. Every man can go outside and see a big bright object in the sky in the day and say, Huh, I wonder. They can go out at night and see all those stars and say, Huh, I wonder. Or they can take their hand and blot out the sun and say, Yeah, I'm just going to pretend it doesn't exist. Because now, now let's talk about this theologically. God is fair and just. The Bible makes that abundantly clear. God is sovereign. Makes that abundantly clear. So how does this all work then? So this guy goes out in the middle of South Africa. I keep saying South Africa. South America. He goes out in the middle of South America. And he goes up and he sees the sun. And he has this a moment of epiphany where he stops and says, There's something bigger than me. Then he lives the next 70 years and dies without ever hearing about the name of Jesus. Now, see, I don't think that's what would happen. I think if there's an epiphany moment of there's something bigger than me, now I go to the book of Acts, and I look at all the times that God supernaturally took care of people that wanted to hear the gospel in the book of Acts. How about Acts chapter 8, where the Ethiopian eunuch, where Philip is led by an angel to go share the gospel with him. How about in Acts chapter 10, where Cornelius has a vision, and Peter has a vision, and God brings them together. How about in Acts chapter 16, where Paul has a vision of a man from Macedonia, and he's supposed to go share the gospel with them. I firmly believe if that guy living in South America looks up, sees the sun, has an epiphany, and says there's something bigger than me, and I want to know about it, that means God is still some missionary in Europe or in America to say, hey, guess what? You're going to go to South Africa. See, I did it again. <laughs> See, I did it again. Man, I'm glad I don't teach homeschooling geography to my kids. That's, that's not good. God will send somebody there to do it. Because that's what the Bible tells me. I see it in Acts. I see it in Romans 1 that God says I can be clearly seen. I see it in John 1 that the light comes into the world. I see it in Psalm 19 that their voice is heard. I don't worry about them. I just have to be open to whether I'm the guy called to go do it. That's all. Because the Bible is so good. And it shows God's goodness and fairness and justice. That he will make sure it is clear. And it will be shown to them. And that's what I absolutely love about these pictures. And did you catch in verse 2? Day unto day utter speech, night unto night reveals knowledge. Isn't that a deep verse? Night unto night reveals knowledge. Night. Think about this. If you didn't have night, what would you think of the world? If you didn't have night, you would have earth. You would know that we exist. You would have the sun. You would know that we get light and heat from this very bright object. And every now and then you would see a faint object during the day. Because you can see the moon during the day. And every now and then you would see this faint object in the sky. That's all you would have. Now imagine that's all you had. Then one time you went out at night. And you saw thousands of little tiny lights. Sometimes it's so dark If you go out at night and you know where you're looking, you can see nebula, Orion's nebula. If you know where you're looking, you can see the smudge of Andromeda galaxy. You can see another galaxy. All of a sudden, you can see these things. And and if you would watch the sky for a while, you would see the stars move and you would understand they moved in an orderly fashion. But then every now and then you would see these other lights that, hey, that's not twinkle, twinkle, little star. That, That looks different. And you would say, wait a second. I'm looking at a planet. Because Jupiter looks different than a star from the sky. Venus looks different. Saturn, you can tell. You can look at them and see. And, and if it's dark enough, you can stop and say, wait a second. There's different colors. That's a red sun. That's a yellow sun. And then you start looking through a telescope and all of a sudden you see white stars and blue stars. And you see nebulas. I mean, all of a sudden, night unto night reveals knowledge. It's amazing how often in the Bible, the Bible's taking us away from the night. His mercies are new every morning. But yet in this passage, the night is revealing the depth of God that we did not see during the day. And in some ways, night reveals more of creation than what day does. Day reveals trees and clouds and mountains and fish and water. It's amazing. It really is. But when you go out at night, you see the vastness of God that you don't see during the day. And that's what I love about verse 2. Night unto night reveals knowledge. So now is this. God is amazing. His name is amazing. His creation is amazing. All this drives us to do what? 
hope it drives us to say, I want to know more about you, Lord. And the only way to know more about you is through your word. That's why verse 7 sounds like an abrupt 180 stop. But it's very logical. Your name is amazing. Your creation is amazing. How can I learn more about your amazing magnificence, God? Your word, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. His amazing name. His amazing creation drives me to his amazing word. That I stop and say, I want to know more about who you are. Psalm 138 is a powerful verse. It says that you have magnified your word above all your name. Think about how amazing his name is. We've already established that. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now he goes one step further and says, now your word is magnified above your name. His word. Look at the description of his word here. Now, we're not going to go into a lot of detail of this in 7 through um, 9. Once we get to Psalm 119, we're going we're gonna to not only camp in Psalm 119, we're going to build a house in Psalm 119. Because the depth of that chapter to understand God's word. Now, there's some words here we need to talk about. If you look, starting in verse 7, you have the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the statutes of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, and the judgments of the Lord. Each one of those is a unique word. Each one of them means a little bit different idea. I'm just going to hit this quickly. The law of the Lord. What is the law of the Lord? This is the idea of teaching direction. It's the law. This is how God teaches us and directs us. The next one is the testimony of the Lord. The testimony. This is where we get our word for witness. I have seen what God has done and his word testifies to his greatness. I go read about these uh, Old Testament saints and I stop and say, my God is good. The statutes of the Lord. The statutes right there. It's this idea sometimes called precepts. And it's idea of an officer, of an overseer that points out instructions. So specific things that we're supposed to do. The commandment. The commandment, the authority. God is the authority, the commandment. The fear of the Lord. Oh, you know how much I love the fear of the Lord. That is understanding the awe and reverence of who God is. And then the judgments of the Lord. This word means to obviously judge, to discern right and wrong. Each one of them bring a blessing. When you understand that God teaches us and directs us, your soul is converted, it's refreshed and revived. Hey, real quick, if you're here this morning and your life is just spiritually dry... Get into the Word. It's like taking that old mechanical thing and spraying some WD-40 on it. You just loosen up. You quit squeaking so much and rusting so much. And next thing you know, you're just it refreshes you. The testimony, the witness of the Lord. When I see what God has done in other people's lives, it makes my simple mind wise. The statutes of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, it, it, it gives me specific action, which makes my heart rejoice. The commandment of the Lord, when I understand the authority of it, it enlightens my eyes. It's not about me. It's about God. I mean, isn't that what we try to do to our kids? We try to teach them the authority of God, trust Him, He's right. I mean, I've been walking with the Lord 27 years. I still haven't found a verse in the Bible that I thought I could do better. I haven't found that pastor's like, well, you know, Lord, you've done really good on a lot of them. But if we would just, just take this one verse and change it, let's call that wrong and that right. No, the authority of the Lord is pure and lightens the eyes. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. It discerns right and wrong. That's why we go to the Bible as our foundation to know what's right. If I don't know what to do, the judgments of the Lord guide me. And how do I know this? Because his law has already taught me. His testimonies have already been proven. It's a witness. His commandments show me that he has the authority. His precepts or his statutes show me specific things. And his judgments then teach me what is right. When you put this all together, how blessed are you? That's why, verse 10, more to be desired are they than gold. Sweeter than honeycomb. See, when I first got saved, no, I take that back. When I first got saved, I lived out verse 10. And then life just gets busy. 
You know what I mean? When I first got saved and really started understanding the Bible from an enlightened eye. I mean, I grew up in a church. My parents always took me to church. Uh, Richard and Betsy actually were my Sunday school teacher for a while. I went through CBC. I did all of it. And it laid an amazing foundation of God's Word. But the light wasn't turned on. When I got saved and the light got turned on, oh man, I, I desired it. I couldn't get enough of it. Couldn't get enough of it. But then what happens is life just gets busy. I got married. Went to college, got kids, and then what happened is it becomes something that we should do. I've never lost that. I mean, we should do this, right? I mean, I should, I should, I should get up in the morning and I should read, I should pray, I, I should make sure I do the time to prepare a message. And then what's happened is now, as life has gone on, verse ten, that, that's all I want to do. It's just, it's, let's just be in the Word, Lord, because it's better than gold. It's better than honeycomb. There's a reward. Why would I not want this? And just, Lord, that desire to just be in your word and grow by it. I love this quote by Spurgeon where he talks about John Bunyan. And I don't know if you've ever read any of John Bunyan. He's the guy that wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Spurgeon says this about God's word. Oh, that you and I might get into the very heart of the word of God and get that word into ourselves. As I have seen the silkworm eat into the leaf and consume it, so ought we to do with the word of the Lord. Not crawl over its surface, but eat right into it till we have taken it into our inmost parts. It is idle merely to let the eye glance over the words or to recollect the political, excuse me, the poetic expressions or the historical facts. But we should bless it to be eat into the very soul of the Bible until at last you come to talk in scriptural language. I would quote John Bunyan as an instance of what I mean. Read anything of his and you'll see what is almost like the reading the Bible itself. He had read it to his very soul was saturated with scripture. And though his writings are charmingly full of poetry, yet he cannot give us his pilgrim's progress, the sweetest of all poems, without continually making us feel and say, why this man is a living Bible. I love this quote. Prick him anywhere and his blood is bubbling. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text, for his very soul is full of the word of God. That's what it is. I love that. Prick him anywhere, and his blood is bubbling. You bleed the Bible. You just talk the Bible. Not because you're forcing yourself to, but just because that's all. That, I mean, that's what verse 10 is saying. More to be desired are they than gold. Fine gold, sweet and honey gold. And the answer is not just, hey, go out and read the Bible more. It works, though. But I just tell you, pray for that heart. Understand the depth of it, the blessing that comes out of it. So if you remember correctly, what we said we were going to do was this. His name is amazing. His creation is amazing. His word is amazing. Last two points, and they're pretty quick. Since his word is amazing, it reveals how unamazing I am. Twelve. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me, then I shall become blameless. I shall be innocent of great transgression. As I get into the word and I see the glory of God, it reminds me how unglorified I am. And I hit my knees in prayer and I say, Lord, cleanse me from secret faults. There may be sin in your life you don't even realize it's sin. That's why it's so important to have a regular time of, Lord, reveal my heart. As we talked about a couple, I think it was actually last week with those Psalms. Lord, you search me and try me. Maybe there's a sin in me that I'm not seeing, I'm not understanding, I'm not acknowledging. You know, maybe when my spouse comes to me and says, hey, you're not always right. Maybe they're right. Maybe when my boss says something. Maybe when my kids say something. Maybe when my pastor says something. Maybe when somebody says, hey, you could be wrong on this. Lord, let me pray about that. Maybe I have so blinded myself to sin, I don't even see my secret faults. And then it goes one step further in verse 13. Presumptuous sins. Some deliberate, willful sins. David Guzik describes presumptuous sins as this. When we know better, when our friends have warned us, when God himself has warned us, when we have warned others against the same sins, and when we plan and relish our sins. These are sins done in a proud and knowing way. Deliberate, willful. I have seen these sins in my life. I've seen these sins in other people's lives. I have said these words. I've had people say these words to me. Pastor, I know it's wrong, but what could you possibly say after that? I know it's wrong, but... 
James, I know what I did was wrong, but hear me out on why. Because I have a reason on why I can justify what I've done. And it just I know the Bible says it's wrong, but, but just trust me on this. Once you hear my reasons and my excuses, you will completely understand how I am right in this and God is wrong. Presumptuous. It translated in some translations as high-handed. Go back to our analogy of, of blocking out the sun with your hand. How often throughout history has there been signs of rebellion and authority with our hands being raised up? It's this idea of high-handed. I'm putting my hand up saying, God, I don't care about you. Just get away. I know this is wrong. And I don't care. Folks, that is a dangerous, dangerous place to be. Go with me real quick to Numbers 15. If you're like me, you have committed presumptuous sins. You've committed high-handed sins. You've committed sins that you knew were wrong, and you went right into it, eyes open, saying, I'm still going to do this. Aren't you thankful for God's grace and mercy? Old Testament law, though, Numbers 15, 27. If a person sins unintentionally, then he shall bring a female goat in its first year as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for that person who sins unintentionally. When he sins unintentionally before the Lord to make atonement for him, he shall be forgiven him. You shall have one law for him who sins unintentionally, for him who is native born among the children of Israel and for the stranger who dwells among them. So we're going to sin. That's the reality of it. And I'm thankful for God's grace and mercy. And how often do I sin? It's like, Lord, I didn't, I, I didn't want to do that. I didn't. I, I saw it coming and it's like, oh, Lord, forgive me. But now we get into 30. But the person who does anything presumptuously, high-handed, whether he is native-born or stranger, that one brings reproach on the Lord, and he shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord, he has broken his commandment, that person shall be completely cut off, his guilt shall be upon him. Now we're dealing with people, and once again we're back to that idea of, I know I'm wrong, and I don't care. When you know better, when you've been warned, when God has warned you, when we have warned others against the same sins, and when we plan and relish our sin. They give an example of it. Look at 32. Now while the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. Now if you know anything about the Bible, the Sabbath day was a big deal. Take the day off. I mean, what a blessing. Take the day off. God in His infinite love, grace, and mercy is telling the nation of Israel, just take the day off. I'll provide the food for you. I'll take everything for you. You just do nothing for a day. Now, why would anybody argue with that? But here's a guy gathering sticks. And if you look at the context of this, he's gathering sticks right after they teach about presumptuous sins. It's almost like the guy went out and said, I know it's a Sabbath, and I don't care. Hey, everybody, look at me, picking up sticks. And I'm just going to go pick up as much sticks as I want in front of everybody. Presumptuous. I've seen presumptuous sin in my life. I see it in my kids. With our twin girls, talk about presumptuous sin. They go over near the TV. They stand at the TV. They look at you and you say, don't touch the TV. Their hand goes up, don't touch the TV. And they touch the TV. Is that not presumptuous, high-handed sin? That is just sin nature. I do it. 33, and those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron to all the congregation. They put him under guard because they had not been explained what should be done to him. Then the Lord said to Moses, this man must surely be put to death. And all the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. So as the Lord commanded Moses, all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him with stones and he died. Now some of you are saying, yeah, that's the problem I have with Christianity right there. No, I don't have a problem with God. I have a problem with the guy that decided to go out and gather sticks and he was told not to. God made it pretty clear. God said obedience. I mean, is this not what we teach our children, what we teach society? Obedience? And it goes back to what we said in Psalm 19. God's law. It's pure. It's enlightening. It's confidence. authority. We trust it. He knows what's right. Now, this is where I have to make sure this point comes across clearly. Aren't you thankful for grace and mercy? Because there are times that I'm the guy gathering sticks on the Sabbath. Sometimes I'm the guy that's like, yep, I know it's wrong. And the Lord still says, James, I love you. And James, I forgive you. 
And if you're here today and you're involved in something, let's just be completely honest, that's presumptuous. You know it's wrong and you don't care it's wrong. I hope God's word right now is is, is cutting to your heart and love and grace to say it's not worth it. God's word says right is right and wrong is wrong. Stop, repent, confess, give it to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm done fighting you on this. And you just will be amazed at the joy that comes over. Because look at the promises from Psalm 19 when we follow his word. It says right there that our soul is refreshed. We're made wise. We're rejoicing. We're enlightened. And we're made righteous. We're made right by God. And so therefore, now's the time to stop and to say, Lord, I can be forgiven for this because I've lived in rebellion against you. And your grace, your free gift of forgiveness is so beautiful. Because I'm the fool that picks up sticks on the Sabbath and you can still forgive me. Let's finish up with this. 14. God's amazing, his creation is amazing, his word is amazing, which makes me analyze myself as a created being to realize how much I need my Savior that forgives me even when I am presumptuously sinning, he can forgive me when I ask for it. Because as it says in 13, let them not have dominion over me. Lord, don't let it take me over. I shall be blameless, I shall be innocent because of your forgiveness. But look at 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. What's the end result of all this? Lord, that my words glorify you. That what I think about glorify you. Let me be acceptable in your sight. That word acceptable in the book of Leviticus talks about an offering, a sacrifice that God honors and accepts. Lord, my words, my thoughts are a sacrifice to you. And I say, Lord, I give you me. May I be acceptable in your sight. And how can I be acceptable in the sight of God? Because look at the end of 14. He's my redeemer. He redeems me. He purchases me. He buys me. He takes me in my state of sin and forgives me. And what an amazing thing that is. I I don't know what you've brought in today. I don't know what sin you've brought in. But I know that you have a God that loves you and can redeem you. And can forgive you. And when I look at the power and majesty of his creation, why would it not make me stop and say, Lord, it's you. It's you. And I can just lay my life at you. And you will just forgive and uplift, and you'll, you'll get me out of the mess of this marriage, this mess of my life, the mess of my house, the mess of all this. It's a mess that maybe I have created. And Lord, you'll still redeem me because you are such a good, loving, grace God. Worship team, if you can come forward here for the final song.